this is I've had people ask me in book reading you're, you're, you're too discouraging for our young people but it's, it's like racism is permanent you know it's permanent I think that, that, that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging it, it can be enlightening things have changed but you're saying at, at its root it hasn't that's, that's and right. it can't and if the things have taken taken different forms uh, the subordination takes different forms okay. than it did okay. but, so but this is a, it's not because all white people are equal or bad it's because the system requires that there be this outgroup and, and in America that's black people I think I see a great deal of satisfaction and some degree of happiness in people who have determined to spend as much as they can on recognizing bad stuff and making it better. Welcome to the Space Traders Podcast. My name is Ray Sean, and we're taking a look at some of the stories written by civil rights lawyer and activist, scholar and professor Dr. Derek Bell, and then reflecting on his perspectives about racism in America. So if you haven't had the chance, check out episode one where we talked about Derek Bell, the man, and the influences that shaped him and his unique perspective about racism and the law. On this episode, we're looking at a story titled The Chronicle of the Slave Scrolls that comes from Bell's book titled And We Are Not Saved. Initially, I wanted to start off these stories by looking at the parable of the space traders, which is the namesake for the podcast. But I thought that this parable just had way too much in it that speaks to the things that are currently happening in our country right now pertaining to critical race theory and all the backlash that we're seeing about it. So there's a ton in this story here to reflect on, and there are even some legal reflections that, because I'm not a law student or a scholar, I hope that I can explain with some level of clarity. But overall, the story centers on talking about the history of racism in America, the responses of black and white people to it, and the implications of First Amendment freedom of speech rights. Again, the purpose of this podcast is just to consider Bell's perspective and to see what we can learn from him. So what I'll do is I'll take a few minutes to share the parable, and then we'll point out a few things for reflection. So let's jump in. The story is narrated by a man who was once a civil rights lawyer, but eventually, motivated by the teachings of Howard Thurman, he becomes a missionary, and then he becomes the minister of an urban black church. On making a pilgrimage to Ghana, the minister, walking on a beach during a beautiful sunset, finds a two-foot-long model of a slave ship containing three parchment scrolls inside of it. The scrolls were slave testaments, first-hand accounts written by slaves about their experiences. And so the minister, he takes the scrolls back home and he starts teaching the content in the scrolls to his church. Written in antiquated English, the content of the scrolls was the seldom-read history of slavery in America. A history gory, brutal, filled with more murder, mutilation, rape, and brutality than most of us can imagine or easily comprehend, Bell states. The scrolls instructed its readers to study them thoroughly in groups, and upon following these instructions, the members of this church started experiencing a healing process. Bell says the marks of racial oppression fell away. The people wore metal bands on their wrists in solidarity with their ancestors. The content of the scrolls, it didn't produce a spirit of retaliation in blacks, but a spirit of motivation and excellence. Black people started experiencing rapid success, so much so that even the most unmotivated flourished in society. More people started joining in on the groups. 
People became missionaries for the movement, taking the content into different cities and states. The media largely ignored the movement initially, but after a year, black communities were being completely transformed. Disparities disappeared. Black families were being strengthened. Education improved. Self-hate disappeared. Crime levels decreased. People on welfare no longer needed it, and businesses soared in profit. In the spirit of Booker T. Washington, black people had begun to lift themselves up. Bell says that, in a word, black people became, in fact, what white people boasted their own immigrant forebearers had been. And then he goes on to state that blacks began outachieving whites in every area, save sports and entertainment, activities that black people no longer believed could compare with the challenge of getting ahead through business and industry. White people responded to the Slave Scrolls movement with alarm. Many felt that the sudden successful uprising of blacks was unfair, and many started complaining about the advantage that minorities had within this majority white society. The government and the media started conducting investigations looking for wrongdoing within the movement. Affirmative action programs were shut down and ceilings were placed on the number of blacks allowed to be hired in the workplace. Working class whites who felt threatened retaliated against the movement and its followers, sometimes violently, beating and murdering those who wore the wristbands. Then one day, a fundamentalist evangelical TV minister preached a sermon against what he called the black success problem. The minister said that, quote, success that is the result of self-help is the will of God, but the preaching of racial hatred is subversive. The slave scrolls, he asserted, created hostility between the races by teaching blacks about the evils of a system wiped out more than a century ago. The minister warned that unless the scrolls were banished, their teachings would prove as pernicious as those of Nazism and the Ku Klux Klan. Ideologies based on racial hatred, he reiterated, should have no place in a country committed to brotherhood across racial boundaries." End quote. And so from the minister's sermon, things moved from the moral sphere to the political sphere, where eventually they established the racial toleration laws, which banned public teaching that promoted racial hatred by focusing on historical tensions between black and white people. It made it illegal to participate in the racial healing sessions. The metal bands worn by black people were rendered symbols of racial hatred. States cracked down on racial healing groups by enforcing the toleration laws. White groups opposed to the movement formed in response to drive out racial healing groups, and the overall response by whites to the racial healing groups was one of resistance due to the belief that the teachings would destroy the moral fabric of American society. For black people, their response was one of resistance, particularly in the courtrooms to the racial tolerance laws, but they couldn't withstand the violence and the injustice they faced both in their lives and in the courtrooms. Their economic successes couldn't be sustained in a majoritarian democracy that set itself against their interests. In one of the last paragraphs of the parable, Bell says, quote, For the black community, the slave scrolls experience served as a bitter reminder that sheer survival rather than inherent sloth has prompted the shiftless habits that continued over time led many to forget that whites are threatened by black initiative and comforted by black indolence. If blacks were to survive, they had to make overtures to peace, a prelude to a return to the past, end quote. For the minister who originally found the scrolls and took them to his church, they were forced to negotiate with the white community, which resulted in them returning the scrolls and denouncing the lessons they had learned from the healing groups. In the end, the scrolls and the ship were burned while black people wept. We'll be right back.
So what's this all about? Well, the first thing about this parable is that it feels prophetic considering that Bell wrote it nearly 30 years ago. But it's particularly prophetic because it sounds so eerily similar to all the stuff that we're seeing surrounding critical race theory these days. It's also ironic because with Bell being one of the founders of CRT, it's ironic that it's his movement, critical race theory, that's now being given similar treatment as the slave scrolls were being given in this parable. So critical race theory isn't the slave scrolls. And you could even argue that the CRT that's being attacked these days isn't even technically CRT. But the slave scrolls and CRT, they both involve this honest focus uh, on America's racial history with an aim to produce equality for black people. Again, what people usually mean by CRT these days is actually more of a junk drawer term that involves talking about racism amongst other injustices and everything from using certain terms like whiteness and white supremacy and oppression to just developing a greater awareness and deeper education about the racial history of our country. And so just like in this parable, whenever there's a focus on America's racial history, it often gets met with opposition and backlash. In our context, it's mainly been from mainstream white American culture that's usually coming from the political right. And so I can think of three ways that we've seen this recently. The first, the 1619 Project, which, although it was controversial among scholars, it actually prompted some healthy discussions about the origins of our country, but it also received a ton of negative feedback, which was even directed at its author, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was recently denied tenure at the University of North Carolina due to backlash from conservative groups. Another conservative response to the 1619 Project was the 1776 Project that was headed up by political conservatives to promote a patriotic education. So when it comes to discussing racial history, the issue isn't that there's disagreement, but there's this pattern that goes into name-calling, labeling, and even demonizing the people who speak about it. Two more recent examples of America's racial history that received backlash were the recognition of Juneteenth and the commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, both events that shined a light on the evils of white racism, and they also promoted black dignity. And both events were uh, events that a lot of people had just never heard about. And so once again, on the political right, although you had some Republican politicians supporting the recognition of Juneteenth, as a national holiday, you also had some conservative pundits saying that by celebrating the holiday, it was a lame socialism pursuing holiday that perpetuated a victim mentality amongst black people. And you also had some conservative pundits who were pitting it against July 4th as the day of America's true independence, like you could only celebrate one. So one of the main points of this parable is that anytime something's brought up concerning America's racial history, especially confronting white racism, there's predictably some opposition that's talking about how even talking about America's racial history is divisive. And if you do, you'll be labeled a race baiter, unpatriotic, Marxist or communist or divisive because you keep bringing up things that people supposedly got over a long time ago. And another part of this is that the opposition doesn't just exist at an interpersonal level. It exists societally and even politically. So the next thing that this parable is about, decolonization, particularly decolonization of the black mind. Decolonization is a response to colonization, which is what European countries historically did to other nations and peoples all over the world by invading and exploiting their lands and resources, erasing their culture and proclaiming their whiteness as superior. Now, that's one type of colonization, but there's also the colonization of the mind, which is what happened to African peoples who boarded slave ships and were 
told the lie that they were black, which meant inferiority in body, mind and soul. Colonization used everything from the Christian religion to pseudoscience and psychology and history to dehumanize blackness. Black bodies were seen as atypical. Black minds were incapable of equal intelligence with whites. And black souls were often regarded at times as non-existent or, of, or being of no more value than the animals. The lie of black inferiority was the justification for the enslavement, rape, torture, the murder of millions of blacks, the breakup of black families, the erasure of African cultural heritage and identity, and even a subservient status as baptized Christians. And that lie wasn't just behind slavery, but was also beneath the second-class treatment of blacks in the eras after emancipation. Even today, in much more subtle ways, some people believe that black inferiority is the basis for certain disparities and perceived negative behaviors within the black community. And so if there was anything that lasted longer than our enslavement, it's the persistence of these colonizing lies that have shaped the way that black people are seen both globally and in our country to this day. This all comes from colonization, and these lies affect the way that black people are perceived negatively by whites, and it also affects the way that black people see ourselves. Ultimately, colonization is a weapon. It's a weapon created by whiteness that upholds whiteness as the superior standard by which everyone else is judged. And then it's a weapon wielded against blackness that condoned several injustices committed against black people and also blamed blacks for their second class experiences in this country. So the work of decolonization is to take the identity of blackness that whiteness used to oppress us and redeem it as a thing of beauty, power and dignity It's to confront and correct the lies that whiteness has taught us about blackness. And then it's to uplift black people to thrive and live free from the oppressive lies of white supremacy. Decolonization frees black minds and empowers black lives to take pride in blackness. So in the parable, the content of the slave scrolls does the work of decolonization by both informing the minds of its readers and supernaturally producing healing, productivity and flourishing in the life of black America, economically, spiritually, financially and educationally and so forth. It gives solidarity with the ancestors and it produces success. How? By telling and confronting the destructive history of racism in America and the strength and dignity of black people in their endurance through it. So when you intentionally create an inferior image of a people and then indoctrinate them with that image, it'll affect who they are, how they see themselves and others like them, and it'll affect their mobility in a society. The colonized mentality blames black people for their issues, and then it weaponizes our problems against us. Decolonization is important because self-hate is real. And when black people face self-hate, there's the feeling of responding to it either by assimilation into the majority white culture, by concealing or ignoring black or there's what's called respectability politics, where you have black and white people who believe that if blacks worked harder to change our behavior or address the marks of oppression, then white people would notice and stop being racist. Neither of these responses is decolonization. Rather, decolonization is recognizing the truth about racism's effects on us as a people. Reflecting on the parable, Derek Bell says this, quote, blacks cannot purge self-hate without nurturing black pride through teaching designed to show that the racism of whites rather than the deficiencies of blacks causes our lowly position in this society, a dangerous truth that indicts the nation's leaders, institutions, and long hollow beliefs, end quote. So decolonization isn't a statement of supremacy or a claim to perfection. Black people aren't perfect, just like every other human being or people group. But the deceitful work of the 
colonial mentality in this country is that our second class status is our fault and our flaws and imperfections assume our inferiority and we must be compared and contrasted to whiteness. So what does decolonization look like in America for black people? Well, it was a multi-generational movement led by several black leaders and movements. People like David Walker, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, Sojourner Truth, W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Paul Robeson, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and then movements like Pan-Africanism and the Black Power Movement. All of these people and movements were invested in confronting and condemning racism's lies and uplifting black people from the effects of colonization. So here's an excerpt from one of Malcolm X's speeches that I think really captures what decolonizing speech is. It reminds me of Genesis 3, where you remember when God came to Adam and Eve after they believed the deceptive lie of the serpent, when he confronted them and told them, who told you that you were naked? Well, here's the clip of Malcolm talking about who taught you to hate. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? To such extent that you bleach to get like the white man. Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race that you belong to? So much so that you don't want to be around each other. You know, before you come asking Mr. Muhammad, does he teach hate? You should ask who yourself, who taught you to hate being what God gave you. So after the parable and talking to his friend, supernatural lawyer, prophet Geneva Crenshaw, Bell talks about Malcolm X and his decolonizing efforts, saying, quote, he didn't want as many whites feared to lead a revolution, but was trying through his angry tirades to show blacks that racism, not inherent inferiority, was the source of their self-hate and self-destructive behavior. What Malcolm X hoped to bring about was the decolonization of the black mind, the awakening of a proud, bold, impolite new consciousness of color and everything that color means in white America, end quote. And so that's what decolonization is. It's an awakening. The term and the concept of being woke is something that we're hearing recently, but it's been around in black America for a really long time because it speaks to having an awareness and a consciousness of the pervasiveness of white racism and the dignity of blackness, even amidst an environment that perceives blackness negatively. And so just like colonialism tears down black identity, decolonization empowers and builds up black identity, undoing a destructive and oppressive self esteem, self-hate, and perceived inferiority that's taught consciously and subconsciously by white society. We'll be back in a minute. Now we're looking at the responses to decolonization. What's the response to the kind of speech that confronts our country's racism? And what's the response when black people start living free in our identity and flourishing in our own way? Well, the short answer, according to this parable, white backlash. And again, it's not always all white people, but it's backlash from white supremacy or the white majority. That's what happens here in this parable. There's backlash to the historical content of the slave scrolls, and then there's backlash to the flourishing effects of the slave scrolls. 
The media initially ignores the slave scrolls movement at first, but when it starts having effects, particularly economic effects here that impact white people, like black people getting the majority of jobs or the black community only choosing to spend money on black owned or approved white owned businesses, well, that's when white people start paying attention. And in the story, they go from alarmed to investigative to feeling wrong to retaliating. And retaliation, it moves from personal retaliation, which is sometimes violent, to moral retaliation, which is what we see in the minister's sermon, and eventually goes to legal retaliation, which is what we see in the racial toleration laws, which in the end leads to more violence. So in our history, when black leaders and movements committed to decolonizing black minds spoke and acted according to these ends, what kind of reactions did they face? Well, they faced white retaliation. Why? Because in proclaiming dignity to black people, it involved confronting and attacking the lie of racism. It involved attacking our whitewashed history. It involved exposing the lies of black inferiority. The state of Georgia put a bounty on David Walker's head for writing his famous pamphlet. Frederick Douglass faced constant death threats. As he became more famous during the days when slavery was still legal, he thought there was a good chance he'd actually be brought back into slavery. And so what did he do? He left the country and went to the UK and Ireland for a time until he could afford to buy his freedom. Ida B. Wells was run out of Memphis. She had her business burned down, and eventually she was placed under government surveillance. Marcus Garvey faced investigation by J. Edgar Hoover's Bureau of Investigation, and eventually, amidst a ton of other controversy, he was deported. W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, who were both involved in decolonization efforts in Africa as well as in America, their passports were confiscated. Du Bois, who was one of the founders of the NAACP and Robeson, an actor, musician, and activist, they were labeled and tried for being communists, and Robeson's legacy was practically erased. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Fred Hampton, they were assassinated. Each of these figures was deeply invested in the freedom and equality of black people in America and in the uplift of black people from their second-class status as citizens. But in the gaze of America's white power structure, they were viewed as threats that needed to be silenced or extinguished. Why? Because they called out the dangerous truth of the pervasive racism in our nation's systems and moral fabric. So those were leaders who were engaging in decolonizing speech and efforts. But this retaliation also happened with successful black economic movements as well. Look at the Reconstruction era where black people were flourishing in a post-slavery society, where some 2,000 black folks held public office. And when black people were getting an education and voting and starting businesses, churches, and schools, what happened to flourishing? black communities like Wilmington, North Carolina, Bronzeville, Chicago, and the Greenwood District in Tulsa. Well, they all faced the same backlash, sometimes in extreme violence that included lynchings and bombings and murders. And at other times, they faced racially driven political maneuvering. And so when you look at this type of perpetual retaliation, what do you think these kinds of evils and violent responses to speaking the truth about racism say and do to observing black minds in our country? What effect does the destruction and gutting of black communities have on the collective black conscious and experience in America? Well, it makes you want to lay low. If white supremacy is the hammer in this country, then don't be the black or anti-racist nail that sticks out. Survive over succeeding. Because look what happens if you confront the status quo about racism. Again, a lot of people don't have any problem with black people succeeding. But the issue has always been with how. Must we do it in the way and in the timeline that white supremacy subscribes? Or are we free to do it our own way as fully human, free-speaking, law-abiding citizens of this nation? And when we do succeed, how will others around us interpret it? 
Another thing caused by these retaliatory responses is that it enables victimization and the perpetuation of despair among black people. Bell says this, quote, in a society where success is a supreme virtue, a deliberate decision not to succeed creates a spiritual vacuum. Just as some poor whites relieve their frustration by feeding on the myth of their superiority, many blacks engage in self-destructive and antisocial behavior as an outlet for their despair. So by making this point, Bell argues that even when we see the faults or the marks of oppression and lows within black communities, the reason is never inferiority of any kind, but it could be a conscious or subconscious decision to lay low or even rebel, to survive over succeed. Or it could also be a lack of motivation rooted in a negative self-perception, which are both things that are fueled by persisting racism and dashed hopes of experiencing equality. And so I know you've got white liberals who will use the history and effects of racial oppression as the sole justification for negative things that take place in the black community, which is equally as insulting to black people because the majority of us face racism and don't respond negatively. So listen, I'm not saying this to make excuses for negative behaviors or as a way for black people to avoid personal responsibility. And I'm also not saying that racism is an invincible barrier that keeps black people from ever getting ahead. But if we're going to have the effective conversations about racism in America, then things like colonization, its effects and its backlash are things that need to be honestly considered and taken into account when we're talking about the black struggle in this country. So the work of decolonizing the black mind is essentially saying to black people that there's nothing inherently wrong with you. You have dignity and you've been historically downtrodden and oppressed in this country, not because of who you are inherently, but because of who you're negatively perceived to be and how white people have acted against you on the basis of that myth. But whenever you believe this or proclaim this or pursue that as a black person in America, well, then you run the risk of facing this kind of backlash. Don't talk about that. Stay in your place or else. There's another response to decolonization in this story, and it's a moral backlash to the content of the scrolls. A white fundamentalist TV minister starts preaching against what he calls the black success problem, which is essentially him saying, listen, I don't have a problem with preaching about right values, character lessons, self-help and personal responsibility, or even the individual sins that come from the lack of those things. But don't start talking about sins like racism and oppression and structural sin, because those things cause division. And so it's no coincidence that Bell includes this in the story. It's a pattern. And this kind of pattern's been around and continues today where there's this moral concern by white American Christianity for the issues surrounding black people. It's what Martin Luther King dealt with and what he called the white moderate, who he saw as the greatest stumbling block towards black freedom. And now in the post-civil rights era, we still see the same pattern in this denial or rejection of systemic racism by white Christians. Why? Well, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith explain this in their book, Divided by Faith, saying that, quote, for most white evangelicals, sin is limited to individuals. Thus, if race problems, poor relationships result from sin, then race problems must largely be individually based, end quote. And so you can hear that individualism in the self-help talk from this preacher. And bottom line, many white Christians are anti-structural. Emerson and Smith go on to explain that, quote, as heirs of traditional values that make the 
United States distinct, white evangelicals overwhelmingly hold both that the United States offers equal opportunity to all and that inequality results from lack of individual initiative and non-competitive practices, such as accepting single-parent homes, having too many children, not stressing education, being too willing to receive welfare, and being unable to move beyond the past. White Americans favor individualistic explanations over structural ones, end quote. And it's because of this unwillingness to embrace the truth about structural or corporate sin concerning racism that Emerson and Smith conclude that, quote, white conservative Protestants blame blacks more or hold them more accountable than other whites do. Nearly two thirds of the white conservative Protestants say that blacks are poor because they lack sufficient motivation compared to half of other white Americans. White conservative Protestants are clearly more likely to see inequality as rooted in black individuals than are other whites. End quote. So again, it's no coincidence that white Christianity speaks up when it does in this parable. And it's also no coincidence that when it comes to bringing up systemic racism and racial disparities and institutional racism within white evangelical Christianity today, the same concern is present. So where do we see this today? Well, back in 2019, at the beginning of the recent craze surrounding CRT, the Southern Baptist Convention held its annual conference where, prior to that, a California pastor named Stephen Feinstein found himself alarmed at the proliferation of toxic, divisive, and satanic rhetoric designed to divide humanity and facilitate constant opposition in our society, end quote. So what was this toxic rhetoric? Well, it was none other than critical race theory and intersectionality. And so in response, he came up with what was infamously known as Resolution 9, which was written as a resolve for the SBC to, quote, decry every philosophy or theology, including critical race theory and intersectionality, is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, since they divide the people of Christ by defining fundamental identity as something other than our identity in Jesus Christ. Well, it took off like wildfire. The Resolutions Committee modified it, deciding that certain insights could be gleaned from CRT while refraining from absolutizing it as a worldview. And from there, things talk, took off even more in the following weeks and months. CRT was being called Marxist, identity politics, and antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Albert Moeller, who's president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, stated that, quote, critical race theory emerged from worldviews and from thinkers who were directly contrary to the Christian faith. But ironically, a little over a year later, Moeller and conservative evangelical groups were referencing and interviewing an atheist named James Lindsay in an effort to try to take down critical race theory and intersectionality. So in their resistance, there was something more at play here than biblical values in a Christian worldview. And whatever it was, it was enough to collaborate with people with significant ideological and convictional differences. In November of 2020, you had the six Southern Baptist Convention seminary presidents come together to reaffirm the Baptist faith and message and also condemn critical race theory as an unbiblical, troubling and antithetical to the Bible without any input from black leadership and without ever actually defining CRT. So. Again, this isn't about CRT and what it actually is. It's about the kind of conversations that the white majority is comfortable with when it comes to talking about racism and racial history in our country and their response to those who make efforts to decolonize minds through confronting that racial history. Overall, the point is that they're repeating a pattern. Just like this minister in the parable, there's this good old American desire for brotherhood and unity and even a willingness to talk about personal racism to a certain extent. 
But whenever you press in further, it's really just the denial of talking about the more complex realities of historical, structural and systemic racism that exist in America. And so on to the next level of backlash, political backlash, just like in the parable where the slave scrolls movement goes from facing retaliation on a moral and spiritual level to facing backlash on a political level. The same thing's been taking place in these recent conversations around the same time as conservative evangelicals were strongly pushing back against critical race theory. You had then President Donald Trump, whose base was overwhelmingly white evangelical Christians. He came out against CRT and announced a ban against teaching divisive concepts in the workplace. And what was at the top of that list? Critical race theory, followed by banning any teaching that says that the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist. And shortly after this announcement, the president tweeted that critical race theory is a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Again, this is a pattern. So I'll say it again. This isn't really about critical race theory. It's about what it represents, namely an honest look at the history and role of race in America. So shortly after Trump's executive order in late 2020, in January of 2021, Republicans started introducing bills in the House that mirrored the racial toleration laws, which in the story, Bell says, severely restricted and in some states banned outright public teaching that promoted racial hatred by focusing on the past strife between black and whites. And so these bills, which bar state employees, contractors and schools from talking about divisive concepts involving race, sex or religion, they don't sound any different. And so far, five states have passed these bills into the legislation and 17 more have seen the bills introduced in the legislature. School board meetings have been filled with angry parents denouncing critical race theory being allegedly taught in their kids' classrooms. Fox News has used the term CRT on air like 1,300 times in three and a half months. More than that, just this past week in Texas, the Senate just voted to remove required lessons in its schools about the civil rights movement and the women's suffrage movement, movements that weren't really talked about that much anyway. But on the contrary, in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis recently passed legislation focused particularly on teaching about and denouncing communism and totalitarianism in other countries as evil as far as how these ideas have affected governments and their citizens. So it's like much of America is only willing to focus on certain kinds of historical evil while actively attempting to erase and even muzzle others, particularly its own. So why this backlash and resistance morally, politically and even physically, particularly when it comes to confronting America's racial history? Well, Bell believes that the motivation behind it could be similar to what slave states did with anti-literacy laws in the 1800s. It wasn't really about the act of blacks reading or writing, but what they might do with the information that they learned and communicated. It begs the question, what do these opponents think might happen if our country actually did talk and teach about the evils of our our history during slavery, the Jim Crow era, and during the civil rights movement. What are they afraid of? Black retaliation? Communism? What we're seeing that communism isn't nearly as much of a threat to our nation as this recent resurgence of right-wing Christian nationalism is that's fueled by patriotic myths and whitewashed narratives about our country. If people here are anything like they are in Bell's parable, then what they might be most fearful of is the changing of the status quo, the threat of their power shifting. And so that's what we'll go on to see next. But what if, like the effect of the slave scrolls, this education and looking at our racial history actually actually caused flourishing and benefited not just the black community, but our entire nation. 
Well, maybe we'll never know. And I say that because what this backlash, especially these anti-CRT bills get at, are restrictions on First Amendment rights. And they function more like speech codes designed to keep certain aspects of America's racial history from being taught or publicly discussed. That's the strategy, as Bell goes on to prove. And that'll take us into our next segment. So we'll be back in a second. More than anything, the Chronicle of the Slave Scrolls is a legal story, and it deals with First Amendment rights. The parable asks the question, what happens when black people use their First Amendment rights, such as freedom of speech, freedom of association, and freedom of protest? What happens when they use these for the purposes of decolonization? What happens in the court of public opinion and in the legal courts? Do courts side with black people in discussing our history, even when it causes backlash? In the parable, amidst all the black flourishing and backlash to it, black lawyers attempt to get the Supreme Court to strike down the racial toleration laws as a violation of First Amendment rights, such as freedom of speech and freedom of religion and association. Well, the court doesn't. And Geneva Crenshaw goes on to point out that the exact same thing happened with blacks during the Reconstruction era. Amidst their flourishing and the retaliation that they faced, their lives and their rights were overlooked. In our context, we've seen some of what happens when black people or minorities continue to exercise our free speech and protest rights. In the culture, you look at everything that happened with Colin Kaepernick and everything that he went through for protesting police brutality by kneeling during the national anthem. And the same thing went for several other athletes. Or on a political level, last year and even in the few years prior, when there was an abundance of protests, you had these states start enacting these anti-protest bills only after the peaceful Black Lives Matter movement protests and after protests against Trump's Muslim ban and after peaceful protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And yet, after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol building by white nationalists, you didn't hear anything about certain conservative politicians enforcing these anti-protest bills against these white nationalists. The stuff that this parable points to is predictable from the backlash to the legal responses. And so here's where Bell's theory of interest convergence comes in. When black people have an interest to peacefully gather and talk about America's racial history for the flourishing of their community, and it generates this kind of hostile response caused by the interest of white society, will the courts uphold free speech? Or will they decide to regulate it? And so here's interest convergence in the courts. Remember, interest convergence is the theory that says that black interests in achieving racial equality will only be accommodated when they're aligned to white interests. Bell mentions several cases and then cites a few that show that in times when there's clear and present danger concerning free speech, the courts will permit states to regulate freedoms of speech and protest in order to preserve order and tranquility. And in this case, even though black people are peaceful and are causing any of the violence or hostility, they're the ones who end up negatively affected and penalized, eventually having the scrolls forbidden and banned and taken away. Geneva Crenshaw highlights the futility of the civil rights litigation to, quote, protect even basic free speech when those activities, while perfectly peaceful, evoke a hostile response from whites, end quote. So Bell's theory questions the effectiveness of civil rights legislation for blacks, even when it comes to something as basic as free speech. 
So that's the courts. But now here's where we see interest convergence in the society. If the courts defended black people's rights to continue the racial healing sessions and consequently their economic empowerment, then he says that that would disrupt the majority white society as a whole. Ultimately, it would be a threat to the powerful. The status quo would no longer be the status quo, according to Bell. And the economic arrangement in our country, as it relies largely on working class blacks and whites, it would be revealed as being more about class than race. Lower class whites might actually see that what Martin Luther King said about them was true. Quote, the unemployed, poverty stricken white man must be made to realize that he is in the very same boat with the Negro, end quote. So overall, what keeps this status quo persisting is what Geneva Crenshaw points out at the end of this parable when she says, quote, the idolatry of consumerism, fundamental religion, and in recent years, a form of media package nationality that integrates patriotism with religion. It served to mask the fact that domestic policy has increased the gap between rich and poor for whites as well as for blacks, end quote. So, look, I wish we had more time to, to unpack that because that's a whole podcast episode in itself. But nevertheless, what Bell says here must be considered. We we have to take this kind of perspective into account. What is behind the opposition? Not to make everything woke, but in taking an honest look at America's racial history. What's feared? What is ultimately at stake that would cause this? this kind of retaliation that we're seeing. So Bell's main point is that with some exceptions and progress made by a few blacks and minorities, white supremacy works to keep black people in a certain place in American society. And according to Bell's perspective, black people can assimilate, self-help their way out of this place or respectability politic their way out of this place. His point is that blacks should continue to do the work of decolonization. But if they decide to make a legal push for full equality again, it's got to be thorough to the T. And It'll only happen when the majority of white society can see benefits of black equality in all areas. So if any progress is going to be made, or if we're even just going to fight racism from the perspective that Bell takes of racial realism and its permanence, then we have to do the work of decolonization, not just for black minds, but for everybody's minds. Decolonization, again, is a work of dignity. It's harmful to black minds to hold untrue beliefs about our identity and blackness in America, and it's harmful to white minds to persist in incorrect assumptions and narratives about blackness and the history of racism in America. It's not unpatriotic to deal with and discuss discuss the ugly and destructive racial history of our country and the way that black people have been categorically perceived and treated because of colonialism. It's not a display of some kind of black supremacy to lift up a people who've been historically and presently oppressed and downtrodden and then restore us to full equality. The truth brings healing. That's what this parable shows. But there's still so many people, both the powerful and powerless, trying to resist and ignore the conversation and retaliating against those who bring attention to it. And so if we truly are a nation that values the free speech of its citizens, and if we truly embrace our history, then we have to see that black people giving an honest look at our experiences in this nation aren't being divisive, but devoted to seeing this country flourish for all. We need to be able to acknowledge and dissect racism on all levels, personally and systemically, in order to pursue true freedom and equality.
All right, so thank you all for listening to this episode of the Space Traders Podcast. Again, uh, we just want to uh, look at and consider some of the views of Derek Bell on race and racism. Whether you agree with them or not, I think it's good to hear him out and to listen to somebody who's, uh, again, uh, a Harvard professor, a uh, civil rights activist and lawyer, and to hear what he says about race in America. So uh, subscribe, follow us, leave a comment, uh, leave a review. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in the next couple weeks with the next episode going through another another parable of Dr. Bell's. Uh, y'all take it easy. Thank you.